Welcome to this episode of the Bethan Goods Podcast. I'm speaking to a very, very special guest. I'm speaking to Matt Clifford, who is co-founder and CEO of Entrepreneur First. Entrepreneur First is an accelerator that that invests in people at the pre-idea stage, b- before they've 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 had an an, an idea and uh, uh, invests in them in in the company they they found. That's a very unique idea. And uh, hi, Matt. Um, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Uh, let's start from the beginning. Why d- did you start Entrepreneur First? And what was the block? What is the reason why nobody had done this before? Yeah, it, it, it's quite strange in retrospect. I mean, we, we've been doing um, a version of what we do at Entrepreneur First for, for over 10 years now. And over that time, I think it's come to be seen as uh, quite an obvious idea about on people, about on people without worrying what they're going to work on, who they're going to work with. But in 2011, when we left our jobs, um, uh, Alice and I, my co-founder and I, it was a very controversial idea. Lots of people said, you know, we shouldn't even bother. And I think the block essentially to uh, someone starting a talent investor, that's what we think of ourselves, you know, we're investors in talent, was just that it defied a lot of the conventional wisdom about how great companies are built. And I think it's actually worth digging into that because the reason it defied that conventional wisdom is both the reason that it's needed, um, but also the reason it took so long for someone to do it. So if you look at the history of startups, at least until the last decade or so, it's been really dominated by a very, very small geographic portion of the world, which is you know, the Bay Area in around San Francisco, San Francisco Bay Area. And um, as a result, most of what we, meaning the world, knows about startups comes from the experiences of people that built companies, you know, in the second half of the 20th century within, you know, a few uh, square miles in either San Francisco or, you know, uh, Palo Alto and and its uh, surroundings. And as a result, you know, although most of those lessons are are true and right, most of the things that, that that community learned are really valuable, some of the things that they learn are very special to that part of the world. And one of the most important ones was that great people build teams organically. So, you know, if you told a venture capitalist back in 2011, when we started Entrepreneur First, we're going to help strangers start companies, they'd be like, no, 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 no. Like everything we know about building companies is that you can't do that. Like all the best companies built their teams organically. They built them with people they knew ideally built them with people they'd known for a long time. You know, this is the conventional wisdom. And of course that is true in the history of Silicon Valley. Why? Because it's the one place in the world where starting a company is so normal that within your social and professional network, the chances of the being a potential co-founder for you, who's as smart, as ambitious, as skilled as you are, is very, very high. You know, like if everyone wants to do this thing, the network density of potential co-founders is very, very high. But what happens if you, transplant that to a place where starting a company is not normal. Uh, What should those people do? Ambitious, smart, skilled people that want to start companies in places where that's not normal. Well, it doesn't really work to say all the best companies, all the best founders knew someone who would be a co-founder. That turns out to be specific to the time and place of uh, the Bay Area, you know, in the last four or five decades. And so the thesis of Entrepreneur First is how about we create artificial network density? How about we create communities where rather than expecting people already know their co-founder, we put them in a very dense network of people 
who have the same skills and ambition as they do, but also have that intention. Uh, you know, they, they're so intent on starting a company that you know they have the same level of commitment as you do. And so that's really what how EF got started. The idea that the world is probably missing out on some of its best founders because they grow up, they live, they work in places with low network density around co-founding. And so our job is to put that right and help the world find the founders that the world's missing out on. Is it harder to screen for talent or, uh, or drive? I think one of the interesting things that we've learned, and you know, we, we must have had many tens of thousands of applicants now. I don't know if it's quite here, 100,000, but it won't be, won't be far off. Um, I think one thing you realize is that those two things are so mutually reinforcing that it's sort of hard to separate the two. Um, I mean, I think there is such a thing as an innate talent for certain things, but it, it does strike me that what you're really looking for in a founder is someone who's taken some, some talent that may be innate, and then because of the application of extreme drive um, has honed that into a skill. And maybe that's the distinction I would make is that a skill is the application of a, of a talent through practice. Um, and so, you know, I think it's pretty easy to screen for smart people. Um, you know, like it's not foolproof, but there are lots of ways that people can demonstrate that they're, that they're smart. What's harder to demonstrate in an interview is whether someone really has the drive to achieve uh, that means they're going to keep going when things get hard. And, you know, some of the smartest people I know have tried to start companies and have ultimately failed because they gave up. And giving up, I think, is like the single biggest cause of failure in early stage companies. And so one of the special things about Entrepreneur First, I think, one of the things that I'm proudest of and Alice and I talk about a lot is by making it relatively inexpensive, both for the founder and for us, to take a bet on someone, to say, come and join us for three months and see what happens, as well as having the interview, which is short, right? It's going to be like 20, 30 minutes. Um, it's hard to see drive in 20, 30 minutes. If you get to work with someone for three months in your office, um, actually helping them build a company, then you see drive. That's how you observe it. And so one of the main things, one of the main reasons that we structured EF in the way we have, which is three months of individuals working together to find a team, and then three months of teams working together to find some sort of product market fit, is in that first three months, we get to observe drives that otherwise might be invisible. And it means we get to take a bet on people who we might never take a bet on if we were just using uh, the interview at the start to screen for the investment. What sort of personality types do you see in these? Is there, um, is there at least a broad collection of personality traits? If not, I, I, I don't think there'd be one trait, but is there a collection mm -hmm. of, of traits that you see in your most successful founders? What, what surprises me is how diverse um, successful founders are on most traits. Um, so the, the, there are some commonalities, but they tend to be expressed in, 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 in very different ways. I mean, I think one is one that we sort of already touched on, which is this drive to win, this drive to achieve. Um, now, that when, when, you, when I say that, probably it conjures up the image of, I don't know, like a tech bro, um, sort of down at the gym or whatever. Um, uh, and, you know, like, I'm, that is absolutely a type that there are, there are people that, from that type that, that succeed in building companies. But I think there are actually so many different ways to like demonstrate that drive to achieve, that drive to win. And it comes out very differently in people of different you know, kind of backgrounds, nationalities, um, you know, men and women, you know, kind of express that sometimes differently. 
sometimes not. Um, but I think I think that's very, very common, um, that, that sort of sense that it's just very important for them to win. Um, and, you know, again, that doesn't mean that they have to be extrovert, you know, like super confident, bold. Like actually, sometimes you see there's this sort of quiet, steely determination in very, you know, sort of quite, quite uh, kind of introvert people uh, that actually is a, a is a drive to win. But that, that's probably the biggest one that we see. Um, and then the other one that is important is a willingness to challenge the status quo one way or another. And I think this is what, what's quite interesting to us is that um, so much of modern life is um, standardized, systematized, bureaucratized such that it's very clear to smart driven people how to win. You know, at school, you know, it's like, I know that this is the test I'm going to have to take and the results of this test matter, so I'm going to work to the test. You know, in a job, I know that getting promoted means that I have to make my boss like me. How do I make my boss like me? I have to make my boss look good. How do I, you know, like all these things that are more or less standardized. You know, we sometimes say like there's a mark scheme. Like it's, it's, it's well known how to ace the test, whatever that test should be. One of the things about entrepreneurship is it's really not like that. I mean, there are some like, echoes of that like certainly particularly when raising a seed round there are certain there are certain things that you want to show an investor that will make them think oh yeah this um this this person ticks the boxes but in the long run you don't win in startups by raising money you win by building something that there's so valuable that people are willing to pay for it and so that there is no mock scheme it really has to be <laughs> you actually have to demonstrate not just signal value and so um why do I say link that to willingness to challenge the status quo? Well, partly because I think so many of us are trained to think of success in terms of working to the mark scheme. And so the people that we want to fund Entrepreneur First probably have succeeded. Many of the times they have succeeded on the mark scheme model, but they're also willing to subvert it. That's not their whole universe. Like they, they, they can see the need to do something off the beaten track outside the structure. So one of the most important questions we ask at interview is tell us about a time you've achieved something that you're proud of that wasn't within a conventional either academic or, or employment structure. And that can be anything. It doesn't have to be starting a company. Uh, it, it, there's all sorts of things. It could be, you know, writing online. It could be, um, you know, starting a club. It could be, you know, kind of making money through some sort of, hacky way of figuring out a system but the whole point is is not just trying to make people above you in a hierarchy look good because that doesn't really work in startups my snarky question would be does the podcast count but anyways um <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, it's actually a good example in that what we're looking for is people that that have the drive to do something that no one told them to do I think that's actually a good way of thinking about it. So like, yes, starting a podcast is a, is, a, is a good example. You know, like it's people that don't wait around to be told, I need you to do this. Like you can make a great career. You can make a lot of money simply being told what to do and doing it really well. Like you can be, probably even be a CEO of a conventional business and work your all way up by, by waiting for that. But ultimately to start something, to take something, make something out of nothing, you need to have that drive to, to not wait and be told. In terms of sector-wise, where um, where are ambitious people going these days? Yeah, I mean, I I think one way of thinking about this is that ambitious people always are seeking leverage. They're always seeking tools, institutions, uh, ideas that will scale the impact they can have. 
And so I would argue throughout history, but I think it's really obvious in the last, say, 100 years, ambitious people tend to be drawn to career paths that maximize the amount of scale that they'll have. And, um, you know, the, the best way to think about this is like, you know, if you're a, um, you know, if you're a hairdresser, a barber, um, it's really hard to find scale in that, even if you're the very best barber in the world, right? You could only cut one person's hair at once. Um, and like, yeah, if you get to be the hairdresser of choice to the world's biggest stars, you know, to celebrities, maybe you can charge a hell of a lot of money for that haircut. But it doesn't scale. Like the scale there is still you're selling your time. And so, you know, in a way, it's a classic unscalable, unleveraged profession. I think what most ambitious people are drawn to, either either sort of um, consciously or unconsciously, is, is, is paths that give them leverage that um, do the opposite. So like for most of the, say, second half of the 20th century, certainly where I grew up in the UK, the obvious leveraged career path was finance. Because in finance, you know, you're not selling your time, um, or, or at least not um, if you're doing it right, you're not. You're, you're sort of trying to find opportunities where a small, in relative terms, amount of effort from you can have huge repercussions. And so, you know, investing is a highly leveraged activity. It takes roughly the same amount of time to invest $100 well as $100,000, as $100 million, uh, you know, maybe a billion dollars well. You know, you, 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 and therefore, there's a lot of leverage um, in that in that choice, you know, like where to where to spend your time, and I think for a long time it seemed like finance was going to be the ultimate version of this because you know you whatever you um, uh, you know whatever part of finance you were in, there were always opportunities to either deploy more capital or you know work with bigger companies or you know whatever it might be. So tons of leverage in finance. I think what's special about the last twenty years, um, and I would say particularly the last ten, is the internet has created a new source of leverage for ambitious people that even relative to finance makes, um, you know, so even finance looks small by comparison, which is simply that there is now a relatively tried and tested way of building something once, maybe even the first version from a bedroom and delivering it to millions, tens of millions, hundreds of millions, even billions of people over the internet. That has never existed before in human history. Um, we're all so used to the idea now that a couple of billion new people use Facebook or Google or YouTube every day that we sort of lost sight of like how extraordinary that is in terms of leverage, like build once, repeat many, uh, deliver many. Um, and I think that the world's waking up to that. I think it, you know, um, it's no surprise that ambitious people are drawn more and more and more into tech because tech provides that leverage. And, you know, like this, I think you see this both in the micro and the macro. I mean, the macro, just look at the list of the world's most valuable public companies. They're tech companies. That wasn't true 10 years ago. Uh, it's, a, it's a really rapid evolution that, um, that's happened, but it comes from the scale offered by the internet. Um, same for an individual, you know, like look at, um, look at how much leverage, say, particularly early career people can have through the internet rather than trying to climb a hierarchy. Uh, and as a result, well, I'm not saying that finance is going away. I think finance is going to be very appealing to a lot of people for a lot of time. As to be clear, will a lot of unleveraged professions. You know, one of the classic unleveraged professions for ambitious people is medicine. Um, you know, like 
broadly, there are exceptions, but you're selling your time. You might not think of it in that sort of commercial sense, but you're, you, you, know, you are swapping your time for impact. Um, now, I, do I think doctors are going to go away? Of course not. Like um, People want to be doctors. There's lots of intrinsic uh, motivations to be doctors. But it's interesting to me how many doctors we have apply to Entrepreneur First who want to take their medical skills and think, figure out how can they use the internet as a tool to scale their impacts. They don't any longer want to be confined to the, to the patient in front of them. I would add a lot to that as well. Uh, a lot of my friends weren't being lawyers. I, I mean, I guess it's the, the, the sort of an exception that if you argue at the York County Supreme Court, you can change every other precedent. That's a minor exception. Um, no, it's not. It's actually a really good point. It's a really, it's, it's worth dwelling on because um, the, you, you're right that the other kind of leverage, of course, is through social systems and social institutions. And I think one of the really interesting tensions over the next decade is actually, I say, I say this as though it's not already happening. It's very evident everywhere. It's between politics and technology. Politics is the other traditional source of enormous leverage. As you say, like you get to the top of a system that then filters down to millions or in some cases billions of people, then clearly that is hyper leverage. And, and law is one tool for that. Politics is maybe the ultimate example. One of the reasons I think that there's so much tension between politics and technology today is partly because there are huge societal issues to try and figure out how do we deal with the consequences of technology. That's the sort of um, idealistic view of it. And it's true. I, I, I don't want to minimize that idealistic version. But the slightly more sort of, um, uh, I guess, follow the money version is you've got a tension between two different types of elites, you know, political elites that are used to having leverage through effectively, you know, these social systems that are that are governed by politics. And then these new sort of Internet driven elites who, you know, have created leverage in a very different way. So I think actually your point is, is really important. Uh, somebody talked about the race between politics and technology. I speak more about it. We've, we've seen clear examples of this with, uh, for example, regulating Facebook in, in different countries. Political elites have no way how to, how to deal with it. It's obviously going to become worse if we have a terrorist attack funded by, uh, for example, um, Crypto, um, funded by crypto exchanges that are off the, the grid, you know, our current thing of on-ramp, off-ramp regulation won't, won't, won't work well. So um, how, do, how do you model this? What's the, what's the um, approach you have towards seeing these problems? So my answer, which is a very tentative one, is that I think, you know, what we've learned is that democracy plus liberal human rights for every individual, certainly not a perfect system, but it seems to do an awful lot of the work that, you know, many people would, um, would say is necessary to, you know, kind of secure the foundation of, of peace and prosperity, as I said. And so I think the question is, how do we make sure that the tools we build, the companies we build are compatible with that? And I think it's a totally reasonable uh, requirement that in any political community, that community can decide what is allowable um, in that community within, for me, you know, speaking from my own beliefs, within the confines of what's compatible with, with individual rights. Um, and that, that's the tricky bit, of course. But I, I suspect that um, I have a friend called Mark Warner who runs a really fascinating AI company called Faculty. And he has this idea that in the end, where we may get to is that any company that's doing you know, building technological systems at the vast, at vast scale, will need to find a way to make the ethical judgments in their, um, in their system uh, separable 
from the rest of the system. In other words, you need to be able to swap in and out different ethical standards such that society can hold to account uh, what the rules are at any one time that are that are powering the system. In other words, rather than Facebook deciding or you know, like some independent regulator deciding that we actually have up for grabs demo democratically what's um, you know, like what are the value systems that we want a given system to obey? And you know, that's true either for a you know AI system, you know, the example he uses is around sort of facial recognition for crime detection, for example. Um, but it also, I think, works for, you know, policing misinformation. Now, is it is that a, a sort of golden bullet that solves all problems? Definitely not. It, very hard technical problem. But I do like the idea that, you know, in every in every system, there's sort of a, a sort of um, mechanical piece and a, and a values driven piece and that if we can find ways to make the values-driven piece swappable, then we can maybe restore uh, democratic accountability for for the choices that are made in that. Again, it's going to that in itself doesn't solve all the problems. You've got to decide which which systems does this apply to. What's the process by which you decide what values um, you know go into the system? But I think it's a useful way of trying to separate out like how do we allow people to build big companies, but also keep them um, subject to some sort of democratic control. We already have this in some way, right? Uh, for example, TikTok or Douyin uh, decides which uh, content moderation algorithms to put in China versus the US, yep. depending on the regulatory field it has. In fact, in the US, any sort of political regulation is seen as negative, although in China it's a necessity. Uh, and then in, in fa uh, Facebook is required to put content notices in Singapore, but the, the same thing in Malaysia wouldn't have a thing. Um, on that, uh, on that, on that topic, what do you think? Of, uh, why is it that our political elites are in 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 many parts of the developed world aren't as technologically um, competent as you would like them to be? Of course, the the memes about uh, ending Finsta or uh, you know those 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 short clips are, are exaggerated and taken out, out, out of context. But if you compare um, Western technology regulation towards, I would say, Chinese or Singaporean regulation, while the values are different, um, you might see, say, see that the latter group people have a lot, are a lot more technologically competent. Yeah, well, I think there are a few, um, there are a few reasons why it's different. Um, the two most obvious are, to me are first, it's just a generational thing. I mean, one of the interesting um, differences between technology and politics is how long does it take to get to the top? And, you know, like one of the interesting things, uh, tensions is that technologists generally can achieve the sort of leverage we were talking about earlier, much earlier in their careers than people that go down the political path. And I think in particular, you know, right now, particularly in America, you know, you, you do have like, uh, uh, politics, the highest level is dominated by much older people. I mean, Joe Biden, Donald Trump, Nancy Pelosi, these are all people who are, you know, 80-ish, you know, like a few years off 80. Um, they grew up in a very, very, you know, risk of like oversimplifying, they grew up in a very, very different world. And, um, you know, it's sort of interesting to think that through, right? You know, if you were born in 1940, um, the internet as a sort of widely used social phenomenon didn't happen until long after you had kids. You know, like you, you'd be in your mid forties. And so, you know, obviously simplifying, there's lots of people in the U S federal government who are not 80, but, but, you know, I do think just one thing is just, is a generational tension between who has power. 
I think the other thing is, it's something about what kinds of training and education are deemed to be the right path um, for, uh, for success. And, and I think that changes more slowly um, than we might like. So, you know, I, I guess uh, Prime Minister's, current Prime Minister of Singapore is maybe a rare exception um, in being a sort of, um, uh, I think, mathematician originally, but, you know, like, it's quite tech savvy. Senior language. He was senior. Yeah, exactly. I mean, like, not, not just a mathematician, but an extraordinarily smart one. Um, but, you know, most of, um, you know, Western political elites went down the legal or, you know, kind of, polit you know, like studying politics, studying history path. And that just gives you a very different sort of worldview. Um, and try I mean, to be clear, I, I start with my first degrees in medieval history. So I kind of feel I've um, spanned both worlds a little bit, but probably neither very well. But I do think that um, just the mental models and the um, frames of reference are very different in different educational paths. And, you know, there are very few people um, who go into politics with a science background. And I think that's a challenge as well. So they'd be the main two things that I would point to. I think, why is that different in, you know, sort of places like China, maybe in Singapore? I think partly because there's a lot, um, you know, politicians, th there are fewer trade-offs associated with going down the political path in, in those places. Um, you know, arguably in both China and Singapore, politicians, you know, have more leverage, um, um, and are more more powerful than than the, maybe their counterparts in in the US or the UK, um, and and also I think because um, you know particularly in China, um, you know politics is much more all, all encompassing. Um, they're much more involved in technological questions than than maybe their counterparts in the West. But you know I think this is going to be really interesting to observe um, in the next you know, kind of couple of decades to see how much this changes. You know, do we see more technologists in the West drawn into politics? I can definitely make the argument that we will do because more and more they see politics bumping up against their world. Uh, and if so, I think that will be a really interesting and, and important change. I was in national service. I, I'm on block leave now. But when I was there, I was leading the power broker. And somebody asked me, came to me, and they and they asked, uh, "What are you reading?" I'm like, "They thought it was a book about stocks because it had, because it had bloker on it." Okay, and then he said, and then he said, "Oh, if you're doing computer science in college, why are you reading this? Uh, shouldn't be shouldn't be reading a math book." I said, "You're particularly dangerous if you know both computer science and politics." But <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. What sort of yeah, what sort of opportunities exist for people in the in the like um, in the Venn diagram inter intersection of uh, both of those? Well, I think there are things that exist today. Um, uh, you know, I, I think it's definitely clear. If, if you take, if you sort of say like, what are the big challenges that particularly, you know, kind of the West faces today? I think one of them is that the biggest areas of government spending are in places that have been in some ways least touched by technology um, and simple and certainly whose productivity have been least impacted of technology and particularly thinking obviously of healthcare and to an extent education. And, and so I think, you know, there is one huge opportunity. Um, you could flip it and say requirement necessity over the next decade, which is that we really figure out how to use technology to improve the delivery of those sort of people-driven public services that take up such a huge 
chunk of um of the you know kind of US federal budget, the UK um government budget, and, and you know, same same throughout um the West, in fact, throughout most of the world. So I think there's a question about government is government provided services are ripe for um improvement through technology. Um now again, technology is not a magic bullet. I'm not like a like hardcore tech solutionist that thinks that you know you just plug everything you know into the internet and everything gets better. Like, but I do think that there's a big question about how can politicians reimagine the welfare state through um through the lens of technology. And I think that's that's a big thing. Um I think the other big thing is that um you know as we've already discussed some of the biggest questions that our societies will face over the next couple of decades are at the intersection of, of you know uh, computer science and, and technology like how you know how do we resolve these questions about um you know like the impact of the internet on um, every aspect of life and you know what sort of society we want to live in and i think if you you really do need to understand both worlds to come up with um good answers to those questions. I mean, one thing I find quite depressing is the naivety on both sides um, when you when these topics are discussed. I mean, politicians, yeah, you can get, as you, you sort of already hinted at, you can get these clips of, you know, uh, US senators saying, oh, the internet is a series of pipes or whatever. And yeah, it's good to laugh at, they look pretty stupid, but I actually find that technologists often sound as stupid uh, talking about politics as though it's this, um, <laughs> archaic system that's been superseded like i think that's a very very naive view politics isn't going away like politics simply means like how do we make decisions together and i think whenever elites of any kind have decided that you know we don't need to make decisions together anymore um things have ended badly and uh you know i'm i'm a, i'm a real optimist about the future but i think if technological Tech elites, which you know increasingly will mean economic elites, are complacent about the role of politics. Um, very bad things could happen, and you know I, I think um, you know we we don't want to personally. Although I you know I'm a pretty centrist guy, uh, very liberal guy. You know I think revolutions tend not to work out very well, even for the people that start them. Um, historically, I mean political revolutions, um, but you know we are absolutely potentially sowing the seeds. For, for revolutions in, in some countries if we don't think about how do we solve some of the problems that technology causes and you know wishing that away is not going to work so I, you know what I hope the optimistic answer to your question is that you know people at the intersection of that Venn diagram are the people that can actually help us navigate the path to um, a future that gives us the best of what technology has to offer you know kind of information knowledge prosperity being spread over a much wider group of people around the world um, but without destroying the fabric of society that, that makes all that possible. You write uh, about this on your blog, switching completely differently. How did you initially get distribution for your newsletter? Um, so I started writing the newsletter in, I think, February of 2018. Um, and it's something I've been meaning to do for a long time. Like um, every... Um, every Christmas, you know, we shot the EF office for two weeks, uh, which is a tradition we inherited from McKinsey where we used to work. And it's, it's a really great time for reflection. And every, every Christmas I would sit down and say like, what, what do I think is a lot sort of missing in my life? I'm very lucky that I really love my job. I'm, I'm very lucky to have a great family. I've got two young kids and a wonderful wife. Um, but I kind of felt like I wasn't really expressing the sort of 
non-startup, non-tech side of my interests. You know, I'm very interested in politics, uh, in history, you know, kind of social systems. And, you know, that really, I was reading a lot about these things, but I was just not really exercising my brain on them. And so I decided that given that I was doing the reading already, I would just write a short weekly newsletter that just was a digest of um, the, uh, you know, it's kind of three most interesting things I'd read that week. And um, I think the reason I mentioned that is I think my advice to people that want to start these things is that you have to be, I think, very willing to have purely intrinsic uh, benefits uh, for, for writing or creating in general for a long time. So when I first started it, I mean, the answer is not many people did read it. I think maybe maybe 400 people signed up for the first edition, um, which was, you know, some almost entirely people who knew me. You know, I guess through my work, I meet a lot of people. So, you know, it was like friends, colleagues, entrepreneurs that we'd worked with, investors, that we, you know, it was a very small group of people. Um, and honestly, I obviously don't charge for the newsletter and, you know, I don't think I ever will. Um, don't sell advertising. So like I get no direct economic benefit from it. And, and so I, for me, I was doing it well because I wanted to collect my thoughts. And it doesn't, in my experience, there are exceptions. There are people who are a lot better at this than me to be uh, a risk of staying the obvious. But, you know, at first it grew very slowly. And if I needed some sort of motivation other than I want to, I want to be a clearer thinker. I want to like figure out what I actually have concluded about something. I want to improve my retention of, um, you know, uh, an idea or whatever, then I wouldn't have done it because it, it was so slow. Um, but, you know, I think if you do something and do it reasonably well for a long period of time, two things happen. One, people pass it on to people. Almost everyone who comes to uh, read thoughts in between my newsletter is referred by an existing reader. Um, occasionally there are these moments where someone with a big audience talks about it. And then there's like a flurry of, of new subscri uh, subscribers. Uh, I was very lucky, you know, so 18 months ago, Patrick Collison tweeted about it and that sort of generated, you know, like 500 new subscribers very rapidly. Um, uh, but, but generally it comes from just people passing it on. And so I think it's about consistency, you know, kind of really keep to a rhythm um, it's about um, consistency of uh, what you talk about so that people roughly know what to expect. And I think it's about not being too um, worried about the growth, you know, like just just enjoy it. And, and I think it will come. But I, I, I still the newsletter now has become a very, very valuable thing for me, even though it's still not very big. I mean, it's, um, it's grown, but it's not grown fast compared to some people out there. You know, I think it's about 5,000 people read it every week. But I'm very lucky who reads it. And, um, you know, it's read by people that I really admire. And uh, it's a great way to build relationships with them. Um, also, it's read by a lot of people who are really interested in what I write about. And so I learn a lot from them. Almost every week, someone will reply to my newsletter with something I'd never heard of before. And it's a, you know, it's a hugely valuable uh, way of learning. Um, and I think it's a way to sort of, uh, it's going to sound a bit weird because it's obviously a broadcast medium. It's a way to stay in touch with people that otherwise you couldn't speak to every week. There's a lot of people that read it that sort of feel they know me better than than they do because I do it every week. And I think that's a really great thing. So um, yeah, I, I mean, I'm definitely the opposite of a, a growth marketing expert. I'm very bad at it. I'm sure if someone was better at it, you know, maybe they'd found a lot more readers uh, for what I write than, than, than I do. 
but um, but it's been a hugely satisfying thing for me. In parts in between 150, I'm, I'm messing up the number here, but um, yeah. you don't, our favorite, if in, if in frequent theme, is the very long impact of historical events. In your opinion, what is the most underrated historical event? Underrated? Which, which has long run impacts. Yeah. Um, that is a very good question. I mean, I think most of the long run, most of the things that we think of having long run impacts are sort of fairly well known. I mean, I mean, the, the ultimate one, which is very well known, is the Industrial Revolution, which you know is, is continuing to have impact today. But if I was to try and pick something that um, had long run impacts, that's probably a little bit less well known. Um, I think. Probably, I would say something like um, I, I, I think that the, the one that comes to mind is just how persistent the patterns, um, uh, the geographic patterns that came out of the um, 16th century Reformation are today. So if you look at um, uh, which parts of Europe became Protestant and which parts of Europe stayed Catholic, um, those geographic areas remain very different today, even though, um, you know, that's sort of 500 years ago of uh, the original um, split. So, you know, for example, I mean, to use, to use two, to use like a, a sort of more historical example and then a, a modern one, um, we know that, um, uh, those patterns predict uh, which areas have higher levels of literacy today. Um, so areas that became more Protestant are still more literate today than they were um, uh, sort of, uh, sorry, they're still more literate today than areas that, that, that stayed Catholic, partly because Protestantism um, is a, is, you know, grounds um, faith much more in reading and writing. So that's kind of amazing that um, patterns of prosperity today follow the path of the 16th century reformation. I, I find that like really amazing. The other one which I wrote about recently, which I think is fascinating is that um, places that were on the frontier of the American West, in other words, were up at the very limits of, of how far um, people from you know what was the what became the United States spread. Um, frontier counties today are more distrustful of authority than counties that weren't at the frontier. So there's a great paper that came out recently showing that um, there's a very strong correlation between a county having been at the frontier for a long time in American history and um, reluctance to impose COVID nineteen lockdowns. Um, or mask wearing. Well, that's kind of amazing, right? The idea that 19th century um, patterns of whether you were at the frontier would, you know, a hundred years and many generations on predict whether people are willing to wear masks. But there is something that seems to persist about, um, uh, about space, uh, physical location that, um, that transcends any explanation of, you know, kind of just, you know, who the people were. And that I find really fascinating. I, I just had the random thought that a philanthropist in the 16th century would fund Martin Luther, but anyways, <laughs> for yeah, long well, I mean, economic I, outcomes. 
it, it is um it is funny to think about those those sorts of effects right where um you know like if without getting too much into the history of the reformation on which i'm not an expert in any case but you know like the only reason really that luther was able to succeed was that he happened to be uh in a place you know like where, where he um where there was a political reason for the ultimate feudal lord of that place you know the um uh the the, the prince effectively um of uh of the location he was in to defend it uh because of the you know the fragmentation of the of the holy roman empire and so um you know it, it protestantism became a sort of convenient political tool uh for those people uh to sort of um fight their own fights I, you know it wasn't particularly i don't think that you know like his um you know the, the the sort of leaders of his his area were particularly theologically struck by his arguments it just was a very useful tool and so like the consequences of that split you know kind of echo down the centuries and you see that again to use a very uk centric example you know the reason that britain became protestant which i think is actually probably quite important in ultimate explanations for say the industrial revolution was largely because Henry VIII wanted to divorce his wife and the Catholic church wouldn't let him. I mean, I'm simplifying massively, but um, it is funny, these little things down the ages that, um, that, you know, most of what we do, I believe, um, you know, I, I believe in structural explanations of history that, you know, it's not, you know, the specific actions of specific people, but I think the exceptions to that are real and, and are fascinating. Not sure what the correct philanthropic example is there, but I'll find out someday. <laughs> um, how do you source you 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 have three or four links you talk about? How do you source those those links? What's your media diet like? Um, by far the biggest source is Twitter. Um, I am very much of the I'm very much in the pro Twitter camp. I think Twitter gets a lot of. Um, grief uh from from people but i think it's a wonderful thing by far my most used um source of information i think what is true is that you have to curate your feeds to make twitter valuable and it's hard to do um and that's probably why it's you know it's, it's not grown as as rapidly as as you know a facebook or whatever um you know it doesn't make i think it doesn't make a lot of sense to follow your friends on twitter um you know it's not a great medium for that but you know i follow a lot of academics uh, a lot of technologists. Um, I, I follow um, a lot of journalists, and you know, I, I find that between them, they usually link to a number of things that that I'm going to be interested in, and and I curate those through the week, and then decide at the end what I'm going to be, um, you know, what's going to be the three things that I talk about. I mean, other sources that I use a lot. There are a small number of newsletters that I think just are fantastic. Um, uh, aggregators in particular areas. So in particular, you know, anything related to AI, which is a big topic I write about, or topic I write about a lot in the newsletter, Jack Clark's Import AI is, is, is amazing. I read that, um, get a lot of links from there. Um, I get a lot of links from um, Jeff Ding's uh, China AI newsletter, which, which I think is really, really excellent. Um, I get a lot of links from uh, Kevin Lewis, who writes a, a digest of new academic papers for um, uh, National Review. Um, I get quite a lot um, th 
through. Um, you mean the excellent Kevin Lewis? The excellent Kevin <laughs> Lewis. I like how knowledge first. Um, yeah, and I actually get a lot still from Marginal Revolution. Um, although I tend, I tend to try not to write about things that have been in Marginal Revolution because I kind of assume that, probably falsely, that if it's been a Marginal Revolution, then everyone's read it. So. <laughs> What are the uh, qualities among the best blogs you, you read? Like, I not uh, not aggregators, but um, like blogs expressing opinions, yeah. and book reviews, and so on. Yeah, well, I've I've talked about this a bit, you know, and, and to go back to Tyler Cowen, I I think, you know, I I think he has this great phrase that he uses on his podcast conversations with Tyler, which I I call. Um, and he's actually he's actually tweeted about me calling it this, which I find quite funny. I call it like uh, Cowan's uh, golden rule of internet content, which is uh, he always says uh, at the start of the show is remember this is the conversation I want to have, not the conversation you want to have. And I assume it started as a joke, but I think it's a very powerful idea, which is when I think about the really successful creators of excellent internet content you do get the very strong impression that they're writing for themselves. They're not trying to guess what their audience wants. And in particular, they're not trying to guess what their audience thinks they want. Um, they're just giving the content they would want, and then they're matching the audience to the content. So, you know, Tyler Cowan is super well-read across a super wide range of fields. And if you listen to conversations with Tyler, sometimes it's really esoteric. Um, you know, I consider myself reasonably well-read and sometimes I have no idea what his question, what he's getting at. Like, what, what is this question about? And sometimes I get the sense that even the guest is like, wow, I did not expect you to write, uh, to ask that. But it is brilliant. Like, it hap the, the, the magic happens because he's not trying to guess what I want or you want or the median Marginal Revolution re uh, reader or conversations with Tyler Listener wants. He's just having the conversation he wants. And there is something so much more attractive about that than, than sort of the watered down second guessing. Um, um, I don't listen to Joe Rogan, but like I would say at the other end of the spectrum, like one of the reasons that Joe Rogan is so successful is that it's the conversation he wants to have. Like he's not um, he's not second guessing his himself uh, to give the audience what they want. He, you know, he's just having a totally authentic conversation. One of my absolute favorite podcasts is um, the 80,000 Hours podcast, which Rob Wiblin um, does. Oh, yeah, um, mine too, yeah. Yeah, I mean, for, this, so for your listeners that don't know, um, 80,000 Hours is a, a nonprofit dedicated to trying to help people have the most impactful careers they could have. And uh, their podcast is, is interviews with people doing things that are arguably these sort of uh, high impact careers and, and Rob interviews them. And what I love about it, it's like, like some people, um, there's a big trend in podcasts, right? To keep them really short so that people can listen to them on a commute, you know, like 20 minutes or whatever. Rob's average podcast length is probably like three and a half hours or something. And it just means they go to a depth that like, no one else would go to. I love that. I think that's fantastic. Uh, to me, he's following Cowan's um, golden rule of internet content. So that's my, that's my sort of like best guess is, um, the qualities of, of the content I like reading the most are people who are really having the conversation they want to have. Um, you fund people for making businesses. On this, uh, how do you fund people for, for doing this sort of work? How do you select them? What's your blueprint for the institution that, you know, the Manhattan Project of the 21st century <laughs> blogosphere? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think... 
One of the great things about venture capital is that it is, um, you can align all the incentives really well, right? So the reason venture capital works for startups is most startups fail, but the ones that succeed, succeed so big that they pay for all the ones that don't work. Um, and, you know, if you, you know, our best investment so far, a company called Tractable, so far worth about 1,200 times the original investment. Now we've made about 400 investments. So even if everything else had failed, we'd be up 3x, right? Um, now, fortunately, not everything else has failed. So we're up a lot more than that, which is great. But, you know, that that um, that is a very special and unusual uh, feature of, of investing in startups, the power or distribution of outcomes. Now, arguably, there is a power or distribution of outcomes in um, in creating internet content. But it's less obvious that it's captured in cash terms. Um, so, you know, Tractable is worth just over a billion dollars, but it's very rare to be able to like, assuming that your cost base is going to be roughly similar to, um, because ultimately you're funding people and their living costs. So your cost base in funding bloggers is going to be not wildly different from your cost base in funding, um, uh, you know, like, uh, early stage technologists building, you know, like who can write code themselves. Um, the, the hard thing is, unless you can get the tractable like outcomes from funding bloggers, you, you know, you're not going to get that same sort of one winner pays for everything else. Unless of course, you're not trying to get a financial return. You're sort of, you're sort of more looking to um, just stimulate people at the, um, at, at the top end. So you could do it on a philanthropic basis and, and actually, um, Tyler Cowen again is sort of the best at this probably I mean like emergent ventures that he created which goes way beyond startups in fact doesn't do a lot of startups is um, is probably a good example of this I mean I think I think what you you know like probably what is uh, shared across startups and, and, and content creation is the need for mentorship uh, the need for community um, and the need for network. And I think there probably is more we could do to um, we meaning society to sort of um, stimulate our, our best content creators into, you know, being successful. Um, but, you know, I think the thing that's hard about it is just the economic model. But, you know, it's also not expensive. I mean, you know, for, for a million dollars a year, you could probably fund, you know, 50 or 100 um, young content creators and see what happened. So, um, yeah, I think it's, it's an interesting question. In developing countries, you could fund like 1,500 if my math goes right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, 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 like 700 USD is a lot of money in, uh, in, yeah. in the Niger Philippines. So um, that's the true. end of <laughs> Yeah, this is the end of the podcast. I, I really, really like talking to you. It was you 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 talked a lot in depth and um I could see the spark in your in your eyes when you talked about something you really liked. So uh thanks for that. Oh, thanks for having me. It's been really great fun. <laughs>